I haven't done this in a fucking while, man. <laughs> I know it's so hard. It's I, been like, when I switched my podcast to a monthly format, I was like, I forget how to do it between every episode. Well, now. I for a while I was doing it every other week, and then it kind of switched to monthly, and now I just haven't done it since August. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man, this is weird. Um, no worries. You ready? Oh yeah. Katie, hello. I've got a question for you. Okay. Let's say you're a general in an army, mm-hmm. uh, and you have an opponent that's adopting asymmetrical warfare and low-tech messenger tactics. Would you operate as a conventional U.S. Army uh, doctrine dictated you should, or would you go with something a little more interesting? Uh, interesting all the way, baby. <laughs> Yeah, the other parts of that word soup didn't appeal to you? (laughs) No? Don't worry, don't worry. You'll you'll learn what all those words mean today. Outstanding. Aren't you lucky? Big Time Whoopsies. My name is Eric McAdams, and this is a podcast about incompetence. Each week, I tell a story to a friend of mine about history and incompetence. I'm messing up the intro because I haven't done it in so long. (laughs) It's been many, many months since I had to host one of these, but today I am joined by Katie Wright, host of Brett Easton Hell Yes on the Major Cast Network and formerly of the Filmographers. Say hi, Katie. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. I It's a lot easier to have you on this than for me to be on yours because I don't know anything about Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> well, I don't know anything about the military. So. All right. Well, but in, in mine, you're supposed to know nothing. My listeners <laughs> right. are meant to be empty vessels. Fair enough. And that's why I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Yeah. The, the, no preparation. Exactly. The structure of this is... Very easy to be a guest on this. You don't have to know anything. Hell yeah. For me, though, it's difficult (laughs) because I have to write up several pages of notes every episode, and that's probably why I haven't done it in a long time. (laughs) Fair enough. It's just like giving you're just giving yourself homework. You know what's easy to record? We are experts. That shit goes by so fast. We (laughs) they're short episodes. I do the re all the research that happens happens during the recording. <laughs> perfect. A perfect experience. Absolutely. Yeah, putting putting effort into stuff sucks. Yeah, generally. In my experience. Generally and specifically, yes. Mm-hmm. Effort is bad. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How is it actually I'm I am curious about like the amount of preparation that goes in for an episode of Bread Easton Hell Yes. Usually not a ton. I um I read or watch whatever it is we're talking about Mm -hmm. usually we're focusing on either specific book or movie i might make a couple notes but i'm more i'm more of an 
thinking on my feet uh, improvisational podcaster mm-hmm. than a than a big notes taker. Oh yeah, um, it's a lot easier. The on- <laughs> yeah, the only time the only time I took like a lot of notes, I uh, was preparing for my American Psycho episode, which had two guests mm-hmm. um, from. Uh, uh, shit what's it called from struggle session uh-huh. which is a, a podcast that is like a step above above mine in terms Aww. of uh recognition mm-hmm. and like w- audience uh, there are there also... are there are several podcasts like that for this one <laughs> yeah. uh yeah and so i was intimidated by them because i like their podcast and i think they're really smart so i did mm-hmm. i did take like several pages of notes for that nice. one just out of terror but other than that i I just kind of read the book and then I just talk. American Psycho <laughs> yeah. is the one thing I could actually talk about because that's the only movie of his that I've uh, that I've uh, based on anything of his that I've seen. That's all I've got. <laughs> yeah, that's true for a lot of people. Like, if you're only going to know one thing about Brady Stanellis, it's going to be the movie American Psycho. Yeah, that he claims to not like. <laughs> yeah, from what I hear, it's uh, better than the book, but I don't know if that's a blasphemous <laughs> opinion or not. Uh, it just depends on what you're looking for. Uh-huh. If you if you want something that's stylish and enjoyable and a little sexy and a little funny, you want the movie. Uh-huh. If you want something incredibly droning, difficult to read, okay. a lot of tra- traumatic uh, sexual assault descriptions, book all the way. Okay, so if I want something good and fun, I should do the movie. If I want something boring and painful, I should do the book. Correct, yes. So, like, fans are kind of split 50 50 yeah it's a real divide right down the middle <laughs> yeah partisan politics it's mm-hmm. going to destroy the brett easton ellis fandom <laughs> absolutely is there a big fan community for brett easton ellis pretty big uh well you know not big but bigger than i thought <laughs> like <laughs> like <laughs> like i started talking about brett easton ellis uh online uh, and like started my podcast kind of not really knowing if there was an audience for it mm-hmm. and it's definitely had this is like definitely the most popular podcast that I've tried to start and I've you know tried to start several mm-hmm. um so he does have like a pretty good following it's a little bit it's a little bit niche but it was also a market that I think is underserved because I currently have the only Brett Easton Ellis fan podcast. You've cornered the market. Available. Yeah, I've cornered the market. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So all those people who love Brett Easton Ellis but hate girls who sound like Valley Girls and say like a lot mm-hmm. have no choice but to come to me <laughs> and leave me messages about how they don't like my speech patterns. Hell yeah, that's what you like. Yeah. Not only do we have to listen to our voices when we edit them, but also we get to get corrections on how to say things. The podcaster <laughs> people... experience. <laughs> Do you get people complaining about how you talk? Um, I don't get like internet randos telling me to say things differently. I do get ribbed from like Tom and Maddie about like how I pronounce <laughs> words sometimes. Okay. So is there a lot of, is, can I ask, is there a lot of hubris in Bret Easton Ellis fandom and or books? There's definitely, yes. I would say there's a lot of hubris in the characters that Brett writes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of hubris in Brett himself Mm -hmm. as a man. Uh, And uh, it's it's probably fair to say that there's a lot of hubris in his fan base as well. There's definitely a lot of like unearned confidence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because the one thing you asked for when I when I asked what kind of topic you want was that you wanted a story where someone's hubris is their undoing. Yes. And I think I found a story for that. 
Very excited. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad, because we're going to talk about the war games uh, that happened in the early 2000s, which you wouldn't expect would be that interesting a topic, but, you know, stay with me. All right, I'm with you. Uh, Especially during the first couple paragraphs here, because they're kind of boring. Let's get started. (laughs) Okay. Alright. Paul K. Van Riper was born on July 5th, 1938, meaning he just missed it. He just missed being extremely on the fucking nose. (laughs) He was born in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. He lived most of his young life in the suburbs of Pittsburgh before he enlisted in his local United States Marine Reserve Corps in 1956 at the age of 18. His twin brother also became a Marine. Van Riper attended a college in Pennsylvania and was eventually commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1963. He would go on to serve on active duty for over 35 years around the world, including Vietnam, Egypt, Israel, the Dominican Republic, and Okinawa, seeing combat on multiple occasions. He gained a reputation for both discipline and shrewdness, becoming a well-known, intimidating figure in the 80s and 90s for younger soldiers. After serving in Desert Shield and Storm, he was promoted to Lieutenant General. He finally retired in 1997, though he continued to serve on multiple advisory boards long after that. Cool. Not not the most interesting (laughs) biography. Yeah. Any thoughts on Paul Van Riper? Um, well, he sounds like somebody that I probably would not enjoy spending time with or having a conversation with. I think that's but fair. He sounds like if you're, you know, a patriotic pro-military American, it sounds he sounds like a perfectly respectable man. Mm-hmm. He sounds like somebody that a lot of Americans would consider heroic. Uh-huh. Based on this information. Yeah. Then, on September 11th, 2001, the United States of America changed forever. Nearly 3,000 people lost their lives in the single deadliest terrorist attack in human history. I'm not going to go over it because I think you get it, but it had a (laughs) profound effect on the country's psyche in that America lost its fucking mind. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I was pulled out of my second grade math class. Oh, second grade. You were so little. Uh-huh. I was in sixth grade. Yeah. Jaded. Used to the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So did you know that the United States has been in a continual state of national emergency since September 14th, 2001? I didn't know that. Mm. Why Why didn't it start on September 11th? Yeah, I guess it took them a couple days. It took them three days to yeah. Uh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I've definitely felt that in my bones every day. Emotionally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Intrinsically, we felt it. But this actually isn't that unusual as the United States has a couple dozen currently active national emergencies ongoing at any one time. Mm -hmm. But most of those are related to economic sanctions of various countries. Uh, In its history, the United States has declared a national emergency on military grounds just five times. Two of them were for World War II, and they they tend to last at least a decade. One of them lasted for about 28 years, encompassing the 50s, 60s, and 70s, while the U.S. (laughs) fought communism in places like Korea. Yeah, you you didn't know that the idyllic 1950s were all... military national emergency did you yeah but i guess that makes sense since everybody was on a communist witch hunt Uh uh uh-huh (laughs) but the other two the other two of the five uh military national emergencies are still ongoing 
One of them being Trump's emergency to build the border wall. Oh, God, that's an emergency. Uh-huh. That's a national Great. emergency that was declared last year. Incredible. Or maybe this year. I don't remember. The other was declared by George W. Bush in 2001. That one sounds right. Yeah, the war on terror is essentially that national emergency. And what a national emergency does is it lets the it lets the United States executive branch basically do more stuff unilaterally without worrying about being stopped. Mm, that doesn't seem great. Exactly. This isn't super important, <laughs> but part of why the United States can detain anyone suspected of terrorism indefinitely for whatever grounds is because we're in a state of national emergency. Part of the reason that service ter term limits can just be adjusted arbitrarily is because of national emergencies. Like, it does, gotcha. it does allow them to do a little more. Gotcha. So... See, it seems like if you... Like, if you instate the checks and balances, mm -hmm. it seems like you still want them when it's an emergency, right? Yeah, but no is the thing. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll actually get a little... I'll, I'll speak a little bit about the checks and balances a bit later. Pretty soon, actually. Okay. The war on terror is, subo is supported by this ongoing national emergency, but what really drove it in the early years was the fanatical genocidal response by pretty much the entire political and journalistic establishment. Yeah. America essentially became the world's proudest death cult. Less than a week after the attack, plans for a large-scale invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq and then Iran and possibly other countries were discussed. President George W. Bush called this war a crusade. I really want to hammer home just how insane a time it was because the whole country decided to go on a march to war based on misleading intelligence reports and an oil industry that was slavering to take the Middle East for as much as it could. And I'm not even talking about the war in this episode. <laughs> this episode is, is about, like, is more about stuff surrounding it and leading up to the war. It is not about... Okay the war in Afghanistan or Iraq. I'm gonna say that up front. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are we doing so far? Are you still with me? Uh, I'm still with you, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm just waiting for it to get... Uh, Spicy? <laughs> funny! <laughs> just waiting for the funny parts. Yes! <laughs> so, this is this episode is about, the, is about the war games, but that's mostly... We're mostly gonna get to that after the break, I think. We're going to start with just kind of a potpourri of a few things that happened after 9-11. Shoutouts to the Twitter account at Uniband because they're <laughs> this. I don't know who this person is, but they are the one that put me onto a lot of this stuff. Uh, and, their, and their Twitter thread is what made me want to do this episode. Mm. Yeah, I know. I'm such a good journalist. Yeah, absolutely. So first... Military leaders started to only be promoted or retained when they voiced full-throated support of the war in Iraq. <laughs> this included even huge warmongers, because pretty much anyone with a brain could see that invading Iraq was a bad idea, and as soon as you voiced that, you were pretty much out of the inner circle. <laughs> you had to be optimistic about this. It was a requirement, basically. <laughs> Similarly, there was at least one instance where Republican activists were caught feeding softball questions at Bush press conferences. Uh, one time in 2005, they found that a journalist that had given Bush a like particularly heinous softball question was actually a gay porn star who had been hired by a <laughs> Texas Republican activist group. <laughs> I, 
have some questions about that. Uh, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna just put a link to that <laughs> in the episode because I don't think we have time to really get into it, and it's Fair not. Enough. It enough. doesn't relate to the rest of it, but I had to mention it. That's incredible. I just want to say, like, what. I, I'm so curious about why that was the guy who got the job and yeah. like an actor who had led a conservative life. Yeah, the, I, I just, I honestly, my only explanation is that the mid to early, like the early to mid aughts were just a really weird fucking time. Fair enough. It was just, that was the kind of thing that happened. Yeah. That's, and no one, and like, it's not even that big of a story. Most people don't know about it. Yeah, yeah. There's. A lot of a lot of noise. <laughs> <laughs> so incredible. Also, uh, journalists who made Freedom of Information Act requests were frequently slandered as either terrorist lovers, terrorist enables, or America haters. Jesus. Yeah, these are people asking for Freedom of Information Act requests. <laughs> incredible. It was, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the president declared at one point that any country that didn't join the war as the United States ally was an enemy of the United States, which lost oh. several international allies for the United States. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> this really puts uh, into perspective people who are like, oh, you know, looking back, Bush isn't as bad. Like, now that we have Trump, like, they have so bad. It's if, like, no. It, that shit drives me fucking bonkers, Katie. <laughs> yeah. If you ever see someone saying like, oh, don't you wish, I wish, I wish we had Bush back. It's like, you don't know what the fuck you are talking about. <laughs> yeah. 9-11 and the subsequent wars were like some of the worst things that's, that have ever been perpetrated by this country. And no one knows anything about it, partially because the Bush administration would shred information as Freedom of Information Act requests came in. Oh my God. They would just like get rid would... of it. Like the request comes in and then they shred the corresponding document. There are, so there are like, at least, oh, we don't have it. Yeah, basically there are a couple <laughs> reports that are like that. And if, the, and if that didn't happen, things would be redacted. There were, before, before this, the, this administration took over, there were websites that would have like transportation, other like metrics, data that the government collected. And those went off the internet as soon as like the Bush administration took over. Wow, that's like some full-on 1984 shit. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> so speaking back to the checks and balances thing, the the Bush administration had already been pushing for a more powerful, less accountable executive branch since the day one, well before 9-11. They had already tried rolling back transparency statutes before the attack, and 9-11 gave them a really good excuse to act on them. Right. 9-11 and the national emergency. Yeah, oof. This, I mean, I'm feeling more and more sympathetic to the Bush did 9-11 people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty clear motivation. Yeah, in terms of, like, the jet fuel can't melt steel beam stuff is ridiculous, but, like, uh. there there were motives. Like, Bush-Cheney, Bush, well, not Bush, Cheney made money off of the war in the Middle East. Like, there are vested interests. Like, he was, I think... I'm not I'm not sure I didn't source this, but I think there was a point where they discovered a map of Iraq in Cheney's uh, office that carved up territory for oil companies. Wow. Yeah. Did Cheney come from an oil background? Um, He was the CEO of Halliburton, which was not an oil company. Let me sorry. Let me make sure what it actually does. 
Yeah, no worries. I know I've heard the name Halliburton a lot, and mm-hmm. I understand it to be evil, but I don't actually know what it is. It's like, a, it's a it's a big multinational corporation. Oh, no, never mind. It is an oiled field service company. Oh, okay. So, there you go. Yeah, Halliburton profited hugely off of this war, and Dick Cheney was the CEO of that. Incredible. So, like... <laughs> and he was still... And he still, like, owned shares of Halliburton or whatever. Oh, yeah, very rich man. Sure. (laughs) Incredible. I think someone, like, investigated his ties uh, to Halliburton, like, or or maybe not Halliburton, but one of the companies he was connected to because Dick Cheney was connected to it. And someone, like, some politician, like, apologized to Cheney for investigating him. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Because, like, oh, sir, I'm so sorry that I'm investigating you. And you know what Dick Cheney said? (laughs) What did he say? He said, apparently on the Senate floor, go fuck yourself. (laughs) I feel like I remember hearing about Cheney saying, go fuck yourself Mm -hmm. a lot. But I don't remember the context. I believe that's it. I feel like I just heard people being like, I can't believe he said fuck on the Senate floor. Yeah. But yeah, the and they, they didn't talk that. about the fucking corruption, did they? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, we need to keep moving. I'm just getting started here. Okay. okay. Um, where are we? Oh, here's another thing that happened. Have you have you heard of Pat Tillman? I'm not sure. Pat Tillman was a football star, um, and when the war started, he left the sport to go join the army. Okay. He immediately realized that the war was bullshit and voiced this concern to his uh, fellow soldiers. And he was killed soon after that and uh, immediately embraced back home as a hero. What right-wing admirers tended to gloss over was the fact that Tillman was killed by friendly fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. I I have heard about this guy, yeah. If you went to a football match at any point near that, his name went up on the Jumbotron. <laughs> sure, of course. It was, he was ubiquitous. Uh, and he yeah. was killed by fucking friendly fire. <laughs> After he started coming out. like There's like a conspiracy theory about that, right? I mm-hmm. feel like that's why I heard about it. Because oh, yeah. like after he became critical of the war, he was killed by a fellow U.S. Yeah, soldier. And, and the reason that conspiracy theory isn't that well known is because the fact that he was killed by friendly fire isn't that well known. They just, oh. people just don't know it. Huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there was an intelligence report cited by both British and American forces that stated Saddam Hussein had accelerated his chemical and biological weapons program, went hand in hand with the whole weapons of mass destruction thing that you've probably heard of. Mm-hmm. And these these chemical and biological weapons were carried around in glass containers. Commenters have since noted that this was completely untrue and may in fact have been lifted from the film The Rock starring Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery, which features chemical weapons carried in glass beads. Who, who, who is the one who is the one watching various action movies and then just Someone in MI6, apparently. Incredible. Yeah. That's a real thing. They were like since since that report came out, MI6 has gone like, there are some similarities between this and the film The Rock starring <laughs> Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. <laughs> Incredible. That's a real thing. God. There were, hu- <laughs> there were huge international protests of the war, but the media portrayed them as small because the media itself was hugely in favor of the war. 
There is, I read for this episode, uh, there is a New York Times article where the author called himself a wimp on a rock because he thought America should only invade if it was certain of victory. <laughs> wow. And that was him saying, I'm a wimp on Iraq. Jesus. Yeah. And is this because, like, the the parent companies that own the media are, like, in bed with oil? Or is this just, like, the state of mind that, I think that people are I, in? It's, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it's impossible that, like, you know, corporations owning the media was part of this. But I think it's just the state of mind. Jesus. I think this is just journalists were not critical of going to war for some reason because 9-11 was so shocking that yeah. people just believed that we needed to go to war. Yeah. With whoever. With whoever. <laughs> yeah. Like Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh, there was also, this is from the Twitter account. I didn't actually source this, but there was like, there was like a belief that there was like some huge underground Al-Qaeda cave system that they used as like a headquarters, like a base, like Hell a secret yeah. evil guy lair. Hell yeah. When it was just like, they never had enough people to stock that <laughs> kind of place. Ugh. Yeah. It sounds like everybody was just really itching for this to be a blockbuster. Well, you know who wasn't itching for the war? Who? France. Yes. Freedom Prize. <laughs> yes. The next thing. Uh, <laughs> listeners, in case you don't know, restaurants and cafeterias across the nation renamed french fries to freedom fries because france refused to go to war incredible this incredible. one i do remember getting a lot of play that oh, yeah. at least that at least like you know the daily show and whoever else yeah. was always talking about people definitely picked up on that because it's stupid as shit it's extremely stupid yeah france wouldn't join in the war and so we're not gonna call french fries french fries anymore and that'll show them <laughs> yeah Watch out, France. <laughs> yeah. So I say all this to paint the picture that both the media and political establishment were certain, certain that America could and should invade the Middle East, including Iran. Iraq and Afghanistan were meant to be staging grounds for Iran and possibly other countries. Nothing else mattered. They had to win because they were going to win. <laughs> and this is where Paul K. Van Riper comes in. <laughs> Okay. You'll remember that by this point, uh, 2001 to 2002, Van Riper had already retired. Merely serving as an advisor, he was nonetheless still a respected figure in the Marines. He was selected to act as the leadership of the enemy side in an upcoming military simulation. It was called the Millennium Challenge. And Sounds it was cool as hell. <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> Katie is into it. <laughs> Let's have the Millennium Challenge <laughs> with my boy Paul Riper. Paul Van Riper. My boy Paul nominated me for yeah. the Millennial Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just fucking shoot a lot of stuff. <laughs> It was called the Millennium Challenge, and it was designed to demonstrate new and upcoming technologies and train soldiers in their use. The military was undergoing what it called a transformation to networked technologies headed and or spearheaded by Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense, also Dick Cheney's mentor. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Played by Steve Carell in Vice. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> the exercise uh, was meant to train leaders with tech the military was predicted to have by 2007. The war games themselves began on July 24th, 2002. Okay. They're using like fictional technology at that point. Like they're yeah, just like imagine of. that this gun can do this. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that idea <laughs> <Okay>. later. <laughs> that like, well, this will probably work. So <laughs> this part of the simulation keeps going as planned. <laughs> Uh, you may be wondering what makes this so special. Aren't simulations and training exercises very normal in the military? Why was this one so notable? Well, the answer to that was in its size. The actual exercise involved some 13,500 people, both as active participants and as background support. Estimates in terms of cost range from $200 million to $250 million. Spent on a war games exercise meant to last for about two weeks. <laughs> wow. Jesus. Yeah. The, <laughs> the military spends a lot of money. That's another. That's a whole other thing. Uh, yeah. Like the fact that like basically we lost money in Iraq. Like we just for, we just misplaced it. <laughs> just gone. Jesus. Like there's all kinds of stories like that. Yeah. But that's another thing. We're not talking right, about right, that. We're right. talking about yes. war games. War no games. other war games have come close to that price total before or since. <laughs> Largely because of this one. Okay. Do you know the range of what uh, war games would normally cost? I don't. I assume millions, like, in general, because yeah. that seems to be just how the military operates. But I don't know the yeah. general range. Yeah, military doesn't get out of bed for less. Yeah, than so I million. can't I can't really say like okay. no other war games came close. I guess that's not really I can't really say that with authority, but I'm sources that I to the fire. <laughs> sources that I went to seem to have that opinion. Yeah. That sounds right. Uh, before we actually get into the war games proper though, we're gonna take a break for an ad for another show on the Major Cast Network. Hell yeah. Probably Bret Easton Hell Yes. Woo! <laughs> Hello there! My name is Katie Wright, and I host Brett Easton Hell Yes, the only podcast dedicated solely to the works of Brett Easton Ellis. Who is Brett Easton Ellis, you may ask? Well, he is the author of such generation-defining novels as American Psycho, Less Than Zero, and The Rules of Attraction. He famously took on such topics as the nihilism and pessimism of the 80s, the entitlement of the wealthy, uh, and the evils of capitalism. Sounds great, right? Well, it's not that simple, because he's also the man who recently wrote a book that's just basically about how much he triggers millennials, uh, and he's also the man who once famously said that women can't direct. Uh, there's a lot to unpack with Brady Stadellis. He's wonderful and terrible. I love him as much as I hate him, and I hope that in listening to this podcast, you will come to feel the same way. So please join me on my journey through the wildly inconsistent and problematic, but deeply delightful sometimes works of Brett Easton Ellis on Brett Easton Hell Yes every Sunday on the Major Casts Network. So when we left off, we were going to get started on the war games where Paul Van Riper, uh, retired Lieutenant General Extraordinaire, 
uh, was taking part as the leadership of one of the sides. The exercise used both live exercises and computer simulation and was set as a naval combat scenario. Blue Team, which was America, had the superior firepower and weapon systems and were the invading force. So they were mostly, they were, they were coming from the sea. They didn't already have a beachhead, a land stronghold. Red Team, which was never identified as a, spe- as a specific nation, but we sure have some guesses we'll get into later, had a much smaller fleet and worse, and worse technology, but had the advantage of already being on land. Van Riper was selected to lead the smaller Red Team because of his no-nonsense attitude as a soldier, but also because the guy who was in charge of the whole simulation described him as a devious sort of guy. <laughs> starting to like this guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> trust me. I, I feel like I set up Paul Van Riper to be a very boring guy, but you're going to like him a lot more by the end of this. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> There is some debate as to which precise country Red Team was meant to represent. Some sources seem to think it was supposed to be Turkey. A few more think it was Iraq. But most people think it was supposed to be Iran. Because remember, this was an exercise looking to the future. And the United States military thought it would, be in, it would likely be finished with Afghanistan and Iraq by then and moving on to places like Iran. Wow. Yeah, which also which also makes the idea that it was Turkey especially terrifying. Oh, cuz they're cuz they're just like Maybe we're they were thinking move of going on, there too. Just one after the other. <sighs> Knock them down, boom boom boom. Yeah, cuz apparently we want to just conquer the entire Middle East for no reason. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's it's just weird to think about, especially considering how the war actually went. Yeah. It's amazing that they thought they were ever going to get out of of any of those countries. Oh, you, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, with much hype and fanfare, the games began. But there was one thing about Van Riper that the blue team didn't know. He was playing with a grudge. <laughs> okay. See, this wasn't the first time Van Riper had played the quote-unquote bad guy in these exercises. He had done so the year before in the war games called the Unified Vision War Games, and he had played as a landlocked regional power, and had at one point been informed by the controllers of the experiments that all his nuclear warheads were gone. The warheads that he had started the exercise with were just gone because the quote-unquote good guys uh, had destroyed them, Despite the fact that the good guys never knew where they were (laughs) in the actual games. (laughs) You might be asking, how could this have happened? Yes, I am. (laughs) Here's what happened. Control, the, the, the controllers, had simply decided that the United States would, by this time, have better tech for finding weapons. And so they just assumed that the weapons had been destroyed or would have been destroyed. And thus, Paul Van Riper was not allowed to use them anymore. When this happened, Paul Van Riper complained to the controllers, but they, 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 they placated him and said that next year's exercises would be a free and open and honest exercise where he could play however he wanted with all the tools that were supposed to be his. 
So this time, Van Riper committed. Can you imagine, like, being in this scenario? Like, being the red team, like, with the with the inferior force? And, like, what, what would you do? I mean, you gotta go, you gotta play dirty. You gotta go <laughs> guerrilla warfare. Thank you. Yeah, that's basically, <laughs> that's basically, I asked you this from the, uh, from the perspective of the American side at, at the <laughs> beginning, but that's essentially what he did. He adopted asymmetric warfare. Uh, do you know what that is? Um, not really. I know that phrase. Yeah, asymmetric warfare. It, well, it also gets used a lot in video games. Asymmetric warfare is when one side either has uh, drastically different uh, strength of their fighting force, size, or style of their fighting force, or uses drastically different tactics. Like, if one side is, say, America, and the other side is the guerrilla Viet Cong, that's asymmetrical warfare because they're using completely different strategies. Gotcha. What Van Riper did was he immediately downgraded his communication strategies. Downgraded, not upgraded. What he Because he knew that this was a like very tech-heavy enterprise, he stopped using the radar and other machines that basically his opponents were counting on him to use. That's smart. Instead, he used motorcycle couriers and embedded code words into prayers to avoid any code breakers. This sounds like a great strategy. <laughs> yeah, because blue team's high-tech strategies never caught on to this, nor did they detect Van Riper's fleet of small boats that found the location of the main blue force on the first day. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> Van Riper had adopted an asymmetrical strategy, but the blue team didn't really notice what he was doing because <laughs> they didn't really understand that he was still sending communiques when they couldn't detect anything. Instead, what blue team did, they sent a missive to Van Riper asking for his immediate surrender, which essentially means that they are beginning hostilities, right? Like they are declaring their intentions to, to strike. Uh, Van Riper, thus warned, and with more info than Blue thought he had, played the part of a hegemonic regal power. Regent, not regal. Uh, a, hege a hegemonic regional power. He made a preemptive strike. This was a strategy endorsed by George W. Bush, uh, because just, just previous to this, George W. Bush had created the preemption doctrine, which essentially meant that they were going to use preemptive strikes against any potential threats. Uh, national emergency tie-ins there. Mm. And since Van Riper knew that it... This is a very this was a very well-known strategy at the time, and since Van Riper knew that it was key to his opponent's strategy, he decided to strike first with basically every cruise missile he had as soon as Bruce, Blue's ships were in range. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Simultaneously, Van Riper also sent his crews of small boats to attack and harry anyone not hit by missiles. So what happened was the missiles overwhelmed Blue's sensors and a mix of conventional and kamikaze attacks by Van Riper's boats wiped out the rest. <laughs> According to Van Riper, the battle was over in 10 minutes. <laughs> it, if it had been a real battle, about 20,000 American sailors would have died and oh. hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment would have been lost. <laughs> wow. A silence swept through the room where the leaders were having their little simulation. A call came into the guy in charge, Commander General Buck Kernan, who's the guy 
who described uh, Van Riper as a devious sort of guy. <laughs> the call came in, which simply said, Van Riper just slimed all the ships. <laughs> That's, slimed? Is that, that was terrible? That was the terminology they used, apparently. <laughs> cool. <laughs> And that's, that, I mean, the exercise is basically over, right? So what do you do when the exercise that was supposed to last over two weeks is functionally over in two days? Yeah. Do you have an answer to this? Uh, I guess start over. <laughs> Try again. That is what they did. <laughs> they basically had to restart. <laughs> The, all the virtual ships that had just been sunk were refloated. <laughs> this wouldn't really be cheating if military command had acknowledged that, like, they had, they had lost that, basically. But instead, they seemed to just kind of regard the opening salvo as, like, an aberration, like a loophole or something that didn't count. <laughs> cool. Which really sounds like the United States military, doesn't it? <laughs> always Fair always enough. making excuses that's the marines motto <laughs> so on the second attempt uh which van riper apparently thought would go exactly the same as the first one uh van riper instead found all his actions to be limited this time he was given a predetermined script to use van riper felt betrayed by this because he had been promised free play and instead of that he was forced to play in a way that validated the network the networked concepts and warmongering philosophies of the bush administration he wasn't allowed here's here are things he wasn't allowed to do he wasn't allowed to turn off the technologies that he knew blue team could detect and destroy he wasn't allowed to fire at planes ferrying ground troops to beaches he asked if he was allowed to use chemical weapons and he wasn't allowed to do that. <laughs> he was not allowed to use his own unconventional tactics. He had to stick to the, to the script. And finally, at a certain point later in the exercise, he was forced to give Blue Team the locations of his forces. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was supposed to just tell them where he was, basically. <laughs> just like in real warfare. <laughs> Just like, yeah, you know, listen, 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 we want to do a symmetrical war, not the other one. Yeah. Amazing. And that's when Van Riper quit the experiment. Fair. <laughs> just like, that. fuck this. You're not yeah. letting me play. Yeah. You don't need a leader. You're just going to do what you want to do. <laughs> so guess how the, the second attempt went. I bet that the U.S. military just obliterated you the think? red team. <laughs> blue team won this time. Wow. Good job, blue team. <sighs> military command declared the exercise an overwhelming success. Hell yeah. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, and Dick Cheney's mentor had masterminded much of the military transformation and was unwilling to listen to any evidence that that strategy had flaws or that the planned invasions were unwise. Amazing. No one at the White House was, was, was in any way willing to admit that this had been a failure. <laughs> they just spoke in glowing terms about it, saying like, oh boy, these fucking technologies, they're gonna gonna revolutionize warfare wow it's like i know i asked for a story about hubris but like 
I just like, what is the mindset? Like, are they really just that deluded? Yes. Yes. <laughs> they just think they're just doing the secret. They're just like, I'm going to will this into being how the yeah, world works. And, and uh, General Van Riper said the mood reminded him of the mindset in Vietnam. Excessive faith in technology, inadequate appreciation of the fog of war, lack of understanding of the enemy, and simple hubris. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Van Riper raised a stink about this for years after <laughs> this happened. He sent emails complaining about it, and those emails got leaked, which caused a scandal. Like, saying, <laughs> like, yo, this lieutenant general is pissed about this. <laughs> And in, in there are definitely, there's definitely a claim that without those emails leaking, we like never would have heard about how badly the first run went. <laughs> like we just never, we never would have known. Right. Cause everybody but him was like, oh, that didn't count. Yeah. <laughs> uh, apparently a lot of the soldiers in it was like, oh yeah, this is how war is. This is like, <laughs> it, like it was definitely a wake up call for like some people, but all the people in charge was like, uh, that's why invading Iran will work. <laughs> Eventually, in 2006, Van Riper and several other generals, both retired and not retired, called for Donald Rumsfeld's retirement because they were so unhappy with how he was leading the military. Fair. Uh, and after several months, he did retire, despite the fact George W. Bush was like, no, I have faith in Rumsfeld. I'm not going to force him to do that. Yeah, he did retire that year. Nice. And was it because of the pressure he was getting from That's, the military? I mean, that was definitely what, like, started the whole, started the dominoes falling for it to happen. Sweet. Yeah. So that's the story of the Millennium Challenge. Incredible. That, I mean, I know I said up front that I didn't think, uh, I didn't think What's-His-Face sounded like somebody I would want to hang out with. But I've kind of changed my mind. Yeah, let's let's not go too far here because like I've listened to a like a radio segment with him. He he's not that interesting to talk All to. Right. I mostly just want to like invite him to game night. Yeah, I mostly <laughs> just wanted I I want to like get a lot of sound bites about how the military sucks in like the early two thousands from him. That's yeah. what I really want. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, he'd probably be really good at board games. Right? Yeah, absolutely. The and cruise I... missile thing just <laughs> immediately win it. Because yeah. <laughs> he knows how war works. And the other guys were like, you better surrender. <laughs> yeah. That does make, like, that does make war games sound really fun. I mean, like, yeah. It sounds like, like a game. It <laughs> yeah, you know what's, you know what's way better than war? Games. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We like games. They're fun. Yeah. Let's just settle our international conflicts with a, with a game night. Yeah. Play we should risk. just... Yeah, we should just watch Donald Trump get fucking creamed at poker. <laughs> That's how we should settle these things. Definitely. I'm down for it. All right. So uh, that was that was the main story this this time. At the end of every episode, uh, I do a, a shorter story about because we just did a big one about incompetence on a grand scale. We're going to do a story about competence in an absurd way. Although, frankly, this story is more absurdity than competence. <laughs> love it it's just a weird little sports story that i found that that i wanted to put on some podcast and i couldn't i didn't have in you know locked away in my files i didn't have any pickle for the knowing ones that uh related to war games specifically so like i do in most facets of my life when i didn't know what to do i turned to baseball uh we're gonna talk about uh two yankees pitchers 
from the 1970s who swapped wives. <laughs> All right, I am listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the first part of the sentence didn't grant <laughs> about Yankees pitchers in the 1970s that didn't hook you immediately. <laughs> the latter portion of the sentence is a little more up my alley. I'm okay. <laughs> So it all started at one fateful barbecue. Mike Kekich and Fritz Peterson were two Yankees pitchers in 1972. And on July 15th, a sports writer invited both of them to a barbecue at his New Jersey home to talk about the Yankees. Uh, They both asked if they could bring their wives. Uh, The sports writer said, of course, the more the merrier. And after the barbecue, they got to talking, and the two couples liked talking so much that they decided to continue the conversation over at the local diner. All right. Listening. Yeah, and and here's, like, the most boring opening to a wife swap you've ever heard. (laughs) When we were deciding to leave, we had driven two different cars and happened to park behind each other out in the street, Peterson said. I said to my wife, Marilyn, why don't you ride with Mike to the diner in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and I'll take Suzanne with me and we'll meet there and then we'll go home from there. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not super exciting, but it does. It is like, it's a little unorthodox. A fateful decision it turned out to be. There's something brewing there. You can do it. So... They had so much fun together talking at the diner that they decided that it was so much fun they were going to do it again tomorrow. The next night, they also uh, went to Fort Lee, this time at the Steak and Ale. Mike and Marilyn left early and Suzanne and Fritz stayed and had a few drinks by themselves. So Mike and Marilyn are not married. Yeah, uh, uh, Mike is married to Suzanne, Fritz is married to Marilyn. Okay. Although not for long. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned. Uh, Here's a quote from the allthatsinteresting.com article I'm reading from. Before long, the four realized that they wanted to spend more than just a few dinners with each other's spouses. (laughs) They all felt the same way. They all, they, each man fell in love with the other's wife. That's incredible. <laughs> and here's here's where it gets really, like, here's where like, the only part of it where, like, competence comes in. Okay. Because the situation presents more issues than just, you know, you know, just them hanging out with each other's wives, right? Because both mm-hmm. couples have children and homes oh, and pets. Yeah. They, they don't want to just destroy each other's lives, right? Mm-hmm. So... When I said that they did a wife swap, it's actually not really true. They really did a husband swap. <laughs> okay. Where the the wife stayed in the house and the children that 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 she had that she already knew and the husband just switched lives. <laughs> wow, so they just they just like pieced out on their children. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> just <laughs> That's basically what happened. Now so naturally, this eventually came out to the press, and the press was like, huh? <laughs> I guess this is on our sports section now. I guess this is what we're printing. The, the, I think the funniest part of this whole thing is that when, they, when it was first, like, when they knew that it was going to leak to the press, uh, they went to the same sports writer and went like, Listen, we know this is going to break, so we want you to we want you to get the details first. The one thing we want is for it not to be dirty or smutty. Aww. Aww. It's not it's not dirty. <laughs> it's, 
just two husbands swapping lives. That's all. Like, it's like, don't say this was wife swapping because it wasn't. We didn't swap wives, we swapped lives. (laughs) Was that their wording? Did they say that? Mike Kekich said that, yes. (laughs) At, At the press conference that they had to hold. Wow. And, and... What was what's really impressive is that they really like stayed like quiet and guarded about it because they stayed with their new wives, basically, and they just wouldn't really give the press anything interesting. So eventually the hype died down about it Sure, (laughs) because they were just like, yeah, this is what we're doing. That's it. Cool. (laughs) That's all. That's so nice. I'm so happy for them. Um, Mike Kekich (laughs) and Marilyn Peterson have split up since then. Aww. But Fritz Peterson and Suzanne Kekich are still apparently married. <laughs> like, they just, it really lasted. For and them. you said this was in the 70s? Yeah, this was in the so 70s. This is like 50, 40, 50 years later. Yeah, they might be dead by now. I don't know. I don't know how old this article I'm reading from is. <laughs> uh, and, and Peterson, the guy who's like still happily married, will happily talk about it. The guy who split up with his new wife has not spoken about it. <laughs> in a long time like he he kind of and apparently someone asked him about like making a movie out of it and he said it like he was panic stricken at the thought oh. Oh. so we don't know what happened there <laughs> but that's the story of the two yankees pitchers that swapped lives oh my god that's a great story like i'm sad that the one i'm sad the one marriage didn't work out mm-hmm. but up until there it was just like so sweet and it's so it's like the so weirdest combination around. of like weird horny and like very platonic and nice yeah it's that's... the strangest combination <laughs> that's beautiful like what are the what are the odds of like all four of those people being on board with exactly that. <laughs> yeah, it's so strange. Man, but anyway, that's, great. that's the story, and that's that's the uh, that, that's all I got for you today. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I, you know, two of my least two of my least favorite topics are war and sports. But uh-huh. da- <laughs> damned if those aren't both great stories. <laughs> well, I didn't know that about you. <laughs> But I'm glad we did this. Yeah. Oh, no, I I knew I knew I would enjoy whatever you came up with. <laughs> War and sports, those things that Katie now loves. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. I'm wearing a I'm wearing a war T-shirt and uh-huh. a baseball cap that says sports. Nice, nice, nice. I'm gonna make a baseball <laughs> fan out of you yet. <laughs> Do you have any plugs before we head out? Just uh, Brett Easton, hell yes, on the Major Cast Network. You can find it on iTunes, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Katie L. Wright, and I teach free creative writing workshops in the San Fernando Valley, so you can DM me on Twitter if you're interested in that. I'm, I don't I don't know I'm if great. I have any listeners in the San Fernando <laughs> Valley. I don't know how many listeners I have after going on hiatus for, like, most of the year. We'll see. But <laughs> I hope someone hears that. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, let you know. <laughs> I haven't done plugs in a long time either. Uh, I'm Eric McAdams. You can also listen to me on We Are Experts on the Major Cast Network. You should also listen to all the other shows on the Major Cast Network. Uh, you can find my freelance writing mostly at fanbite.com these days. That's fanbite, uh, where you spell bite with a Y. 
Um, I think that's it. If I have any potential uh, grad school admissions people look- listening to this, you should definitely let me into your school. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so say goodbye, Katie. Goodbye, Katie. Nice. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.